hi everyone we're going to continue our short series called be real today when we've been looking at jesus humanity if you remember we often talk about jesus as uh, as god and of course he was and that's so important that he was but we also know that jesus was fully god and fully human he was a man and he experienced life like you and I do. And that's also really, really important. And it's also very helpful for us that he stands with us in our humanity. He stands with us and walks with us in the things that we all experience. And so we've been asking the question and looking at the issues of Jesus' humanity. Is we, you know, Jesus grieved? And uh, we looked at that last week and that Jesus got tired. He, physical things affected him. And today we're looking at the stress that Jesus experienced. And so we're asking the question today, um, and hopefully we're going to answer it, was Jesus anxious? Because anxiety and extreme stress is something that we are familiar with. And again, we're going to explore that a little bit as we walk through uh, today's sermon. So I'd just like you to turn, please, to Isaiah 53. Um, hopefully it will pop up on the screens as well. And let's just read a few things about the predictions of the, the, the one who would come to save Israel. Um, so let's read Isaiah 53, 1 to 6. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender root and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We are all like sheep and we've gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Father, we just come to you right now as we read this passage and start to look at these issues. And we pray... Please help us. Help us to understand what it is that you're saying to us through your word. Help us to understand something about who you are, about what you've done for us, what that means for our inner life, what it means for the stressful context we find ourselves in, the impossible situations we often face. Lord, help us to find hope and faith in your word today, I pray. Amen. So this is in this passage, the promise of the one who would come to save. And it's written there in Israel's history. So this is the Old Testament. This is the, the word uh, of God that the Israelites would have had and understood and had read out loud in their synagogues. And this part of Isaiah is become known as the, the, the suffering servant, that the one who would come to save would be one who suffered. And so Jesus comes in apparent weakness, um, and of course that is how he comes. He comes as a human, as, as, as a weak 
man. He wasn't a superhero who glided through unaffected by or the events around him. No, he was wounded. No, he was tired. He grieved. He was he experienced extreme stress. He really did experience life like you and I did. But over time, and even with these things written into Israel's history, it seems as if what they were expecting for their saviour was something quite different. They were expecting and hoping for a kind of military dictator, leader, that kind of thing, like a like the superhero, a bit like King David, who I guess would have been closest to a Marvel hero in their own experience, someone who would come and wipe out the enemies of Israel and bring about a human uh, kingdom in the way that they had experienced in the past. But he didn't come that way. <laughs> and we need to understand why. You see, why is this suffering servant so necessary for us? You see, he didn't win a victory over military power, but he did something much, much more profound, much more universal, uh, much more difficult, actually. And that was to save us from our human condition <laughs> and that human condition was that we are sold as slaves into sin and death that was the that was what we needed to be rescued from that was what the savior was going to come and do you see humanity's fall into sin had caused such destruction and chaos such separation and sadness it was going to take something unimaginably powerful to well, to do three things, to show us that that was in fact our condition. And it was to demonstrate, this is, do you know how far you've fallen? And so a holy, pure man who did the things that Jesus did was to demonstrate, look, this is how life is supposed to be. And in the contrast, this is how you're experiencing it. So he does that for us. He, he then works to free us from that condition, to to transform us by his power through his death and resurrection from that condition of lost as slaves, sold into slavery, sold out, completely bound over to sin and death, to rescue us out from it, to make us new creations, to bring us from one, uh, from death into life, from one kingdom into another, to those, those two things, to show us how far we'd fallen, to bring us out of our fallen state, and then also, thirdly, to demonstrate his great love in the process of both of those things. And Jesus coming as a man does that, demonstrates those things to us. Now, more than any other example of how uh, Jesus shares our humanity, maybe, is the events of Gethsemane. The olive grove on the Mount of Olives where Jesus uh, went with his disciples on that terrible evening before his betrayal and arrest and of course leading, leading on to his crucifixion. So let's just read these and I think we'll see these two things coming together here in Matthew 26 and verse 36 onwards. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane and he said to them, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and two sons of Zebedee along with him and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell on his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he turned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? 
He asked Peter, watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. He went back again and found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed a third time, saying the same thing. He returned to his disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. When we look at Jesus' suffering, we see both the horror of his experience, but also reflected in them, the desperation of our own. We see all those things here in the garden. And yet he leads us nonetheless to the Father with hope and faith and ultimately with salvation. So let's, well, I hope we've seen there that Jesus' experiences were so uh, similar and yet more even terrible than some of our own experiences of stress and anxiety. But let's look a little bit at us. We've looked a little bit there at Jesus and seen how the, the suffering servant was, was prophesied. And then we're seeing the realities of that even in Gethsemane. We're seeing the challenge of the extraordinary stress as he f was facing the cross, facing the separation with his father. Now what about our experiences of stress and anxiety? When we desperately want things to be different, we feel intense and uh, overwhelmed. We feel deeply sorrowful. It's become such a common human experience. In fact, it led the, the writer and poet W.H. Auden to coin a phrase in 1947, just after the Second World War. He wrote a, an extended poem, that, which actually wasn't well received, uh, but the poem was titled, The Age of Anxiety. And my goodness, do we ever live in an age of anxiety right now? It is a very common human experience. The, the pandemic, of course, turned that anxiety dial up to 11. Um, a very helpful um, uh, resource, mental health resource called, oddly named, Moon Juice, uh, Mood Juice rather, uh, describes anxiety in this way as an unpleasant feeling that we all experience at times. It's a word often used to describe when we feel uptight or irritable, nervous or tense or wound up. When we're anxious, we normally experience a variety of uncomfortable physical sensations. These include increased heart rate, muscular tension, sweating, trembling, feelings of breathlessness, as well as this anxiety affects us mentally too. For example, when anxious, we often worry for large periods of time, so much so that our worry can feel out of control. These worries are often, these, these worries uh, are often about a very, very variety of issues, and commonly our mind jumps quickly from one worry to another. Anxiety also influences how we behave. For instance, when we feel anxious, we often avoid doing things we want to do because we're worried about how they'll turn out. Although short experiences of anxiety are part and parcel of everyday life, it becomes a challenge when anxiety begins to follow people around as a regular feature of their lives. So that's the little description there from the helpful mental health resource, uh, Mood Juice. Now I could hold my hand up to many of those. Um, uh, that those things are common human experiences and we see many of those reflected even in the life 
of Jesus. Jesus stepped into those things. So Jesus knows something of these things that you experience. He knows what extreme stress feels like. So when he comes to save us, this is really important, he comes all the way into your inner life to rescue you. He comes to find you in the midst of the emotional turmoil, the state that you find yourself in, whatever that might be. And that's in him becoming human, that's that's how he came. He's coming into our lives, into our experience to find us. Now, the extremities of the stress Jesus felt in Gethsemane meant, in fact, that he sweat what was like drops of blood. Now, this is a the extremes of the stress that he felt. Um, and this is a very rare but very clearly documented medical condition that can affect people in extreme mental anguish, often when people are facing their own death. It is extremely rare, but it is documented. So then back to our question, did, was Jesus anxious? Was he anxious? Was it was it anxiety that he felt? Well, the Bible doesn't use the word anxious, and so we shouldn't. But what we do read is this. He was greatly distressed and troubled. He asked the Father three times if the cup of suffering he's about to face can be removed. And yet when God doesn't answer uh, positively, he accepts the Father's will. So where does this leave us? Understanding something of the stress and anxiety that we might all feel, recognising that Jesus also shared something of that experience. Is there anything more to help us other than Jesus' ultimate victory, which of course is profound and life-shaping? Well, there are things that Jesus did, even in these stories. You see, Jesus asked his friends to accompany him. He didn't want to be alone. Um, And this is sound advice. Highly stressful situations mean that we want to not do the things, as we read in that description, that we might feel are useful and actually company's good and out of his trusted friends Jesus chose Peter James and John so from his trusted group of friends he chose his most trusted group to go with him into the place of prayer where he was experiencing this extreme stress so he and he, he so he didn't suffer in silence he, he said oh, come and be with me I want you to be with me and pray with me he asked for help now you might think, well, I don't have anyone. <laughs> I don't have anyone I could ask to do that. Well, we have a pastoral team who would love to help you and are available on all of our sites. Just You can reach out to your site leader or to your connect group leader and they will put you in touch with people who can come and sit with you and that you wouldn't be alone when you experience these moments. Secondly, Jesus prayed. He didn't just ask for company, he asked for company in prayer. And just as the temptation uh, under extreme stress is to, is to withdraw from company, the, 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 the temptation can also be to withdraw from God, thinking, well, what's the point anyway? Nothing ever changes. And, and the enemy loves to do that. He loves to rob us of our most effective methods when we are most under stress. When it's hard to pray, pray. And I don't like the kind of when it's hard to pray, pray the hardest, because I think that seems like we're being beaten with another uh, kind of imperative. Now you've got to do this as well. It doesn't really help us. But invite God into the moment, just like Jesus invited his friends into the moment and, and brought God 
the Father in to pray. They'll do the same. Ask for God's help. Thirdly, he trusted his Father. Now the cup of suffering that he was going to experience wasn't removed. But even in the fact of the moment that it wasn't removed meant that we would never be separated. You see, he took on our separation that we had earned through our sinful behaviour, through our human condition, and he stood in our place. So when the, when the father doesn't reply, when he's asking for the cup to be removed, it's in order that we stand in the son's place. And now he says, yes, I will remove the cup from you. He is, even in him drinking the cup, he is meaning that we never have to. We don't have to suffer separation from the Father. And so we can trust this loving Father who will draw us close to him. He accepts the Father as well. He, say, will, he says, let your will be done. And whilst he was bruised, we are healed. And so we find ourselves able to draw on a father's help now jesus in matthew 6 also speaks about anxiety and worry and stress and he tells us a few things now just after this we're going to hear the story of someone who has uh, lived the life that some of us will have lived and experienced life as many would have done but dan maurice is going to just help us with his own experiences of stress and anxiety but let's just read these verses make one or two comments and then we'll hear from dan Matthew 6 says this, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you eat or drink, or your body, about what you all wear. It's not life more important than food, or the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about your clothes? See the flowers of the field grow. They don't labour or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendour was dressed like one of these. That's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow, is thrown into the fire. Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So don't worry, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things. Your Father, your Heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore don't worry about tomorrow. But tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I guess that's the most famous passage really about worry in the whole Bible. And often uh, we would turn there. I don't want us to look in too much detail, but I want us just to note three things about this short passage of instruction from Jesus concerning worry and anxiety. He says, look at the world around you. He says, look at the birds of the air. Now, he's not just saying, look at a, look at a bird. It's like, oh, I've seen a pigeon, I'm done. No, he's saying, look at, look at the, the, the amazing intricacy, the, the care that God has taken in creating this world. Look at the birds, consider them, think about animals. Just think about what God has made. And when we th consider those things, what do we see? We, th we see the care which God has taken with his creation. We see the brilliance, the intricacy. We see his power. We see the genius of creation. We see the glories and wonders of the created world. And it helps us reflect on what? On God's character, on his abilities, on his power, on who he is and what he's like. It lifts our minds out of the moment into 
something of God's goodness, actually. So it says, look at the birds of the air. Look at what God has made. Look at nature. See. Look and see. So there's, you can just glance and then it says, now see how the flowers of the field grow. Look at how they grow. Now, you know, wiser, cleverer people than I would tell you how, that, how it all works. But look at the chemicals that go on inside of a plant and make it, it, it sort of, you, you put a seed in the dirt and you get life. <laughs> it's a phenomenal thing. It's an incredible thing. We're so used to it that we forget how glorious it is. And it tells us something of who God is. Reminds us of his goodness, of his power, of his ability to turn something that looks so unhelpful, it looks so unfruitful, unprofitable. It just, it looks just dead. And out of it comes what? Life comes out. Look at the flowers. Look how they grow. Look how they are displayed. And look at the glories of it. Brothers and sisters, Jesus says, look around you look at what i've made and see something of who i am in the midst of it so he says look he says see and then he gives us something to do he says rather than be caught up in the in your own moments he, he says seek first his kingdom and his righteousness live for something other than just how you feel in the given moment give yourself to something more it's a it's a, it's a kind of open secret that, that often the best help that someone can have uh, receive, even pastorally in all kinds of contexts, is to go and help somebody else. It's to go and bless somebody else. I know that's been true for me over many years. It's like I can be caught up in my own issues of why won't this change and why won't that hasn't worked the way I thought it would work. And actually go and seeking the good of somebody else lifts me gives me a focus puts my joy not just in my own situation but in the but in somebody else's blessing and ultimately he's saying seek the kingdom of god love god and love each other those two great commandments seek god's kingdom and in doing that we are raised out of the stressful situations that we find ourselves in so we're going to hear from dan now so let's roll that video thanks dan Hi, my name's Dan. I've lived and worked in Bristol um, for years and uh, I love the city, I love the people and Andy asked me to share a little bit about um, overcoming anxiety. Uh, now, if, um, if I'd imagined I would be doing something like this uh, growing up, I'd have been quite surprised. I was always quite a um, sort of fearless, happy-go-lucky type kid. Um, I've experienced a few challenges over my life but generally always managed to overcome find the silver lining in the cloud, uh, keep calm and carry on, have that sort of uh, relentless optimism. And really, particularly for my 20s, I, I did a lot, I achieved a lot, and um, never really felt held back. Um, so I was, I was all, always been quite a sensitive person. I hate to see suffering. Um, and probably, I'd say I have the spiritual gift of overthinking, which isn't one to be recommended. Um, but in some ways that's actually motivated me for good so I've just always been really driven to help overcome suffering make the world a better place help as many people as I can um, and then generally always been quite positive but uh, a few years ago I started on a, on a different sort of stage of life I was uh, writing a book and traveling a lot and gathering a lot of stories and it was actually a really wonderful season um, I loved it I, by the grace of God 
landed a deal with a major publisher and got a book out. It's now out funding the Peacemakers. Um, and it was a great experience, but at the same time, I was also balancing lots of different things, lots of different challenges and uncertainties. And um, I think I, a few years ago, I noticed that my normal mechanisms for dealing with uh, stress, like just keeping, keeping going, being cheerful, just weren't working as much as they had been. And I, just, I wasn't, wasn't really believing my own narrative. Um, and I found myself more restless, more anxious, um, not sleeping as well, more worried about little things. Um, and I actually finished the book in 2019 and I was kind of feeling like, okay, 2020 needs to be an easier year. <laughs> so jokes, obviously, we remember what 2020 was like. And I think during that time I actually published and there was like a whole sort of season where it's quite hard work and I was just keeping going, probably on the brink of burnout, um, just pushing down levels of stress and just looking forward to a rest really. Uh, and it was great, it was a great season um, and I, was, I felt very loved and supported by people who I was working with and in the church and friends and family and it was great really but at the end of it I was just needing a rest and I actually planned um, a little bit of time off and um, it was a particularly good weekend, I played basketball on a Friday night and I'd, I'd spoken at City Church on Sunday and was just going away to see some friends afterwards and um, during that time I actually got Covid. Um, only mildly, but just felt a bit dizzy and tired. Um, but over the next few weeks, I didn't get better. I was still <laughs> exhausted all the time, had a sort of that brain fog, and I felt more anxious than normal. Um, and I got a bit worried about how long is this going to last, and I read the stories in the news, and like, I don't know, you know. Um, and so a couple of months in, I went for a run one day, because I almost just wanted to prove to myself I didn't have fatigue and just going to jog this off which was a terrible idea. And I got, I remember sprinting up Nine Tree Hill, I got to the top and felt initially this sort of elation, like, yeah, I'm fine. And then I was just hit by this horrible wave of anxiety and fear and despair. And I like nothing I've ever, ever experienced before. So um, I went home and sort of explained to my family, I, I appeared to have put my body in some kind of extreme fight or flight mode. And I don't know how to switch this thing off. And it's quite frightening. And it, it didn't go away. I, you know, went to bed. I woke up at three in the morning. I just couldn't. My body was tired and wired. Some people call it <laughs> somehow exhausted, but also frantic. Um, and so I sought the advice of some good friends and family, like I said. And people said maybe go to the doctor. And I went to the doctor, and he was excellent and gave me some medicine and did a few different um, cognitive behavioural therapy courses. And once the meds had kicked in, and I started to pursue you know, the normal stuff, fresh air and good friendships and good sleep and good diet and all the things that you try and manage, cold water, showers, um, but mostly just medication and, and medical help. I, I kind of came out of that dark valley. Um, and it's been, a, it's been a funny old season. Like I say, I wasn't someone who expected to have to sort of have a wrestle with anxiety, but that is the path I ended up on. And um, I wouldn't say I've nailed it yet, but I have learned some tools that have helped. And I guess I had three things I wanted to share that I feel like I've really learned on this journey. Um, and the first thing is just a real um, respect for people who are navigating this sort of journey. I think growing up, I, I sort of thought that anyone who's sort of depressed or anxious is just a bit worried. And I kind of respected that it was a real thing, but I had no, I, no frame of reference for it. And when I experienced like a moment of despair 
suddenly I thought, wow, people who have, who have really been wrestling, managing, overcoming this for years, I just thought these people are, are brave and, um, and role models, people who actually wrestle with a lot and keep on the down low and actually achieving, you know, still loving other people. <laughs> and I just thought um, there's people that are incredibly brave who I just wanted to say, well done, thank you, keep going. <laughs> that was my first sort of reaction, more of a sort of solidarity and respect reaction. And then secondly, I think, um, despite um, initially finding it incredibly difficult, it's one the most challenging season I've ever had in my life, um, but actually finding real hope in, in, a, in a way which I always say, a way in which the scriptures and the science sort of line up beautifully. So um, uh, sort of 50 years ago, one of the sort of um, debates really in neuroscience or psychology was around nurture and nature. Are you a product of your genes or your upbringing? But a lot of people sort of agreed that whatever it was, a lot of the damage is done at an early age. And then your life is really sort of managing whatever's happened to you or whatever you're genetically predisposed to act like. Um, but actually more recently, um, there's been a lot more discoveries around the fact that our brains are incredibly neuroplastic and able to rewire um, from the cradle to the grave and actually deep-rooted trauma, anxiety, stress, um, even things with a genetic predisposition, that doesn't, that's not you forever. <laughs> People can change dramatically. Um, you can rewire thought patterns, you can overcome fears and addictions. Um, you're not ever just a product of either your nurture or nature. There's never a, there's never a, a time when you can't have a second chance. And um, I find that hugely encouraging. Uh, and I've seen all sorts of examples of it and some good evidence behind that. Um, but actually, for me, that's only confirmed what scripture's always said. You know, Genesis to Revelation just feels like, in many ways, a tapestry of stories of people who are no-hopers, who God transforms to do things that they didn't even think was possible. <laughs> From people who seem to have a sort of family line of weakness, like Gideon, who God calls a mighty warrior, through to people who just, who just don't get it right. Like, um, you know, Peter, for example, who couldn't, bring himself to say to a servant girl in a courtyard that he even knew Jesus, he was so scared. And yet, Peter a few weeks later is preaching boldly to thousands. And so I just thought like in scripture and in science, I've seen that deep um, reality that you can always change. There's always hope, however despairing a moment can seem. And I would say I'm actually, I'm not there yet. I haven't mastered it. I haven't overcome all my fears. <laughs> it's still an ongoing journey, but just to know that it's possible is a deep, um, deep encouragement and I think we need to know that um, and I guess in terms of how that's done for different people it's different I think it's really important to say that what works for one person doesn't work for another person particularly with uh, trauma depression fear anxiety a lot of those things um, it's often multifaceted um, I've been taught to be suspicious of people who have like oh you know this one thing <laughs> just enough turmeric will cure you <laughs> often it's a variety of different things um, and I've, I always say, pray your heart out and go to your doctor, get advice from friends and from church and from um, practitioners and medics and doctors and everything. I've tried everything <laughs> and the basic stuff, you know, like I say, good sleep, diet, um, as much as you can um, and to be patient. Um, but I think probably one of the greatest lessons I've learned uh, is that anxiety particularly thrives in isolation. Um, and, and the opposite is true. Courage is brought out in, in, in supportive and constructive relationships, um, courage is really ignited. 
And so, and that's really, it's like a double-edged sword because when you're at your worst, you just want to retreat. And actually I found, um, I think it's Charlie Mackesy who said that uh, asking for help isn't giving up, it's refusing to give up. And I found there's been people in church, friends, family, people I've sort of leaned on this last season who've just carried me, it's been amazing. And that is, that is the normal community that Jesus started. Sometimes you're the one who's given, other times the tables are turned and you're the one who's receiving and we just need each other. <laughs> Um, and that is huge. Um, so, and the work, you know, the advice and the sort of prayers and prophecies of friends have been huge for me this season. I remember Pete Walker saying, um, bring this verse from Psalm 23, which has been a psalm that I've, God's spoken to me in different ways throughout my whole life, really. But he said that uh, sometimes God makes you lie down in green pastures. And then that came up in my daily Bible reading that following week. And then Guy Miller said it again the following Sunday. Like, and I've never heard anyone say this ever before. <laughs> and I find for me, God often speaks, repeats something for enough times that it kind of, I get past the point where I think this could be coincidence or confirmation bias. And I'm like, okay, this is now statistically improbable enough that I feel like God might be speaking. And so for a season, I felt like I was being made to lie down. And that actually, just knowing that God is in the seasons when you're forced to rest and the seasons of breakthrough, he's in the valley and he's in the mountaintop. And so just like I feel like it's really important to draw close to people in times of anxiety, it's also important to draw close to God. I think it's James, Jesus' little brother, who says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And, and for me, one of the reasons why that's so key is that I feel like Jesus really understands the struggle. So I think when you're really going through something, so for example, wrestling with long COVID and the mental sort of consequences of that, um, if someone says, yeah, you know, I had a cold the other day, oof. <laughs> You're thinking, well, I don't think that's quite the same. Um, and you've, everyone's probably had those moments of someone trying to relate to them, but it's not quite the same. Um, but actually, when I pray, I'm not praying to a sort of wishy-washy God that I've made up who doesn't really know what life's like. I'm praying to a really a real historical character in Jesus of Nazareth who experienced everything pain and trauma and betrayal and the death and of friends and family and he knew it all and he sweat blood and he wept and he went through that and so when I'm drawing close to him I'm drawing close to someone who knows the struggle who knows the way in who knows the way through the valley and who knows the way out of it and he's with me in the midst of it and uh, that one verse in Psalm 23 um, even though I walk through the valley of a shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. For me, that's just so important. Um, you're with me. And so for me, there's a sense of acceptance in the fact that, um, in fact, that's actually something Dan Coe said to me just the other week. Um, acceptance is about acknowledging that Jesus is with you in the struggle. He's with you in the fire or whatever. He's with you in the flood just as much as he's with you in the breakthroughs. And sometimes that solidarity is actually worth more than a quick fix answer. Um, so that would be my sort of reflections on anxiety. I'm not there yet. I've learned some tools, but actually on the journey, draw close to people and draw close to God. Thank you so much, Dan. That's incredibly helpful. Thank you for the insights into your own life and walk. Now, I just finally want to say something. You see, as Christians, we are quick to appoint guilt to ourselves and put more burdens on ourselves. And even as I'm speaking about that passage in Matthew 6, and there are others there in Philippians 4. It can, we can just feel it's another cudgel. Now I can't, now I'm not supposed to be worried. So I'm stressed and worried and anxious, and now I'm not supposed to be because God says I shouldn't. And it becomes worse and adds to our anxiety. And I think I just want to 
just uh, kind of say, don't, please don't feel that way. That's really not what I'm saying. It's not what God is saying. He is inviting us into a kingdom of light, of glory, of goodness, a kingdom of actual power and help, a kingdom of a loving Father who wants to draw us into all that he is about and all that he is doing. So please don't see anything I've said today as a kind of cudgel to, to, to make you feel worse about the situation you're in. That is not what the incarnation was about. He came to stand with us, to reach into our context, to our lives, to our situation, and draw us out and save us and rescue us and draw us into his, which is what he does wonderfully in and through Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, want to pray for each other. We want to ask, Lord Jesus, that you would come even now and reach into our inner lives, the inner workings of our minds and bodies and experiences, just as you've done in Jesus. And rescue and save, give us hope and a future. We pray that in the name of Jesus.